It's a beautiful people. How are we? Yeah, welcome to the random 40-degree day in the middle. It's like April 1st, right? This is Texas's way of reminding you what you're not going to feel again until December of this year, all right? So don't be complaining this morning. Uh, good to be here with you all. Uh, man, y'all look beautiful, New Covenant community. Uh, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about Mark. And so uh, just so you know, as we're kind of walking through this, we... Uh, uh, got a couple of questions last week. We're not going through every single section of Mark. Uh, the reason why is because we actually went through Luke not that long ago. And in Luke, there's a lot of parallel stories, and we hit most of these stories. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why. The other reason is that uh, we're kind of focusing on the idea of Jesus being our servant king. And so trying to highlight that reality of how Christ is our servant king and what does it look like to follow this king. And so we're not skipping over sections because uh, they're irrelevant or something. The Word of God is never irrelevant. Amen. Uh, we got to change the sermon real quick or what? That's a, the Word of God is never irrelevant, right? Uh, nor are we skipping over them because we're hard. They're hard, right? Like, like you know that we'll walk through hard passages of Scripture, and so by no means are we skipping over those. We ain't scared, right? We ain't never scared. We told them. All my suburban friends are like, what was just happening, right? So I'm outside of the club. All right, here we go. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be. Uh, if you need a Bible, the ushers are going to be coming forward. Uh, if you would just raise your hand, they would love to give you one. Uh, if you do not have the word, uh, if you actually take and keep that, that's our gift to you. We want you to be able to have the word, to use it during the week. And so, uh, man, please feel free. We want you to have Bibles. And so feel free to raise your hands there. You can also follow along on your smartphone if you have one. The links are there and the instructions of how to do that. Uh, we say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word because we genuinely and deeply believe that inside of this book are the words of life. And that as we see the words of life, sometimes it's almost like braille to us. It like comes up off the page and ministers to our hearts. And so we want uh, to be able to see that as we're walking along today. So we're in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to uh, jump into verse 28, which is a very familiar passage to a lot of us, but one that I think uh, we usually kind of miss the thrust of uh, because of what's happening here in this section. And so Mark chapter 12, verse 28, uh, go ahead and say amen when you're there. Amen. All right, here we go. Verse 28, it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, that's Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, a little bit of background here. Jesus, throughout all of Mark chapter 12, was actually spending all day in the temple sort of debating and arguing with a group of uh, religious elite scholars called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin kind of acted very similarly, uh, almost to how our Supreme Court does in a way, where they uh, took the law and they uh, executed it, and what their decision was was what was true. And so the Sanhedrin was made up of three different groups of people. One of them were the Pharisees. Uh, this was sort of the religious elite, if you will. They were the uh, conservative almost. They took what the scripture said and wanted to walk through that literally. One of them was the Sadducees. Uh, they were a little bit more liberal with the scriptures, sort of adding in some of the cultural flavor, if you will. And then the scribes, which we uh, will read about here and read about more. And so as they are kind of debating, you see that in Mark chapter 12. 
12, and both the Pharisees and the Sadducees already got lit up by Jesus, all right? And so if you look at the context, Jesus already worked them over. And so the Sadducee, or I'm sorry, the scribe then comes and he's kind of like, hey, my man's just killing it, all right? Let me ask this guy a question then. And this is why it says when he saw them debating, they saw how Jesus answered them. This is why he came up. Now the scribes, the people that we get the story from today, uh, they were people who had the whole Old Testament memorized, specifically the first five books of the Bible, but usually the whole Old Testament at large. The reason why is because they would uh, write the Old Testament over and over and over again. That was their job. They were like publishers in a way. And they would also teach the Old Testament. So if you're familiar with the scriptures a little bit, uh, Ezra in the book of Ezra was a scribe. And so he was familiar with the law. He knew how to teach the law. He tried to exegete the law. And so this guy knows what he's talking about. Like when he comes to Jesus, he is coming to him not as like a baby Christian or like, like this guy has been in this his whole life in a way. And the question that he asks is not like a simple question to answer because there were 613 commandments just in the first five books of the Bible. And so when he says which command is the greatest or the most important in a way, like this is a kind of a deep question. And each religious teacher actually had their own answer as to what they believed was the most important command. And so this is what we're working with here. The scribe sees Jesus killing it. He's kind of like, man, I want to know what he thinks about this because he seems to be a really good teacher who knows the law really well. And that was what catapults him into asking this question. And so here's Jesus' response, verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. It's funny because in each of the previous questions that the Pharisees and Sadducees asked, Jesus gave them way more than what they can bargain for as well, all right? And so here, the guy says, hey, what's the most important? And Jesus is like, here's one, and here's one B, right? And all of these are kind of summed up together. And so I think the Lord actually responds to us a lot of times like that too, you know what I mean? Like you ask for patience, and then God in his infinite grace begins to give you patience and self-control at the same time by making your whole world go into chaos, right? Thank you, sovereign Lord, right? And so this is what he tends to do. He kind of answers us with more than what we're even ready for. Jesus uh, will willingly answer your questions, but they're rarely going to be answered in the way that you desire for them to be answered. This is not because he's a mean God, Quite the opposite is true, actually. It's because uh, we are not God, and very rarely in our question asking do we have vision as to what is actually good for our lives. And so God is always going to give us more than what we're ready for because he wants to mold us into his likeness, to direct us on the right path. This is what he is doing here. And so it's always wise to come to Jesus and to kind of listen to what he says because he's going to answer you. He's going to give you what you need. It just might be hard to receive it at times. But listen, your God is not trying to hide blessing from you. Your God is not trying to hide the kingdom for you. Let's say it like that. He wants to give you the kingdom. Scripture says, ask and you'll receive. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. God is ready to be found. We just have to have a heart that's ready to hear what he actually says to us. 
And so this is what the context of this is. Now, in Matthew's version uh, of this same story, Jesus says that all of the Bible, every single command, it all hangs on these two promises. In other words, all of the scripture is fulfilled in love God and love your neighbor, okay? Now, stop and think about that for a second. Like, this whole entire book, everything in here, Every command that's given, every promise that's given, every uh, uh, picture that's shown, every story that's told, all of it is pointing to one of these two things. Everything is summed up in this, you love God and you love your neighbor. Now notice Jesus' kind of genius answer here and what he's saying On one side, he says, look, you have to love God. And so Jesus is uh, avoiding the common uh, idea of like humanism or secularism where we just love mankind, but there's no actual love for God. But at the same time, he says, but you have to love man too. So he avoids mysticism in a way, just an ethereal love for God and that's it. And so really, he's kind of walking in between the the religion and non-religion or secularism. He's neither liberal nor conservative. He's the balance and the extreme of both of those, and he very rarely fits inside of our frame. And so this is what God immediately does. He kind of sees the box that we're kind of working in, and he kicks the box over, and he's way bigger than that box. This is what God is doing. So let's not sleep on this, y'all. Like, God is doing something kind of profound here because here's what I think. I think that we actually have a danger as we approach this text because if we have any familiarity with this text at all, with this passage, if we grew up in church or if we think we know what it means to love God or to love our neighbor, then I think that we completely miss the thrust of what Jesus is actually saying here. It's kind of similar to, have you ever been over somebody's house that uh, maybe like they live right next to a train or an airport or something and like the train goes by and you think the rapture's happening because you've never been in there before and then they're like, what's that sound, you know? And usually their response is, what? What sound, right? They're so used to hearing the train that they just completely uh, miss the fact that it's even there. But for you, it's so fresh, it's so new that you kind of hear the rumbling of it and you think that, you know, the end is coming. Uh, It's really similar to uh, when I was uh, growing up, I grew up in the inner city, and I mean like the hood hood, all right? And so there were like gunshots, and I would hear them and be like, oh, there we go, Q's dead, right? And that was the end of it. But when other people came to visit, it was like, what's happening here, okay? And so I remember uh, being out of that element for a while. Uh, I was then married, and I took my wife to show her where I grew up. And we turned down this street, and as we turned down, I was like, oh, my gosh, lock the door, vroom, right, and sped past it because I was out of it. I wasn't used to it anymore. But it's funny because when I was seven years old, I would just walk to school in that, right? So I think that in a similar way, we can miss the train of this passage. We can miss the weight of this passage if we are too familiar with this. The scribe, he actually knew the whole Bible. That's why I'm saying this. Think about this. Like the scribe had the whole Bible memorized, but he is not getting too comfortable with scripture so as to ask Jesus what he thinks about this. In fact, the scribe came to Jesus probably with a thought already in his mind as to what he believed the greatest commandment was, but he took his wisdom and he submitted it to a superior wisdom and in that was able to grow and to learn. You tracking? 
And so I think it's wise for us in the same vein that no matter how wise we may think we are, that we would take our wisdom and we would submit it to a superior wisdom. And in that, we find life. We find exactly what we are looking for. Don't grow too familiar with the scripture or you'll miss the sweet gift of gold that's right in front of you, friends. That's what we want to press into. And so we love God first. That's what Jesus says, right? What what does that actually mean? Let's not grow comfortable. Let's kind of expand on that some. Think about it. Let it hit you a little bit. It says that we love God with, do you notice a repetitive word there? All of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%. That's 400%. That's a lot of love, all right? And that's what Jesus hits on right away. So we should feel the weight of this some. Like if Natalie came to me and said, Tori, I want you to love me with 100% of your heart and 100% of your soul and 100% of your mind and all of your strength, I would be like, firstly, you ain't Jesus, all right? But secondly, I can't do that, right? Like it's really, really, really hard to love in that way. I don't even love myself in that way. Now, I want to love God like this, but let's be real for a second. Does anybody in here love God like even 12% like this, right? Like, man, it's hard. And so literally, I feel like if I'm even getting some of my mind or a little bit of my strength or a little bit of my heart, then I'm loving God. But Jesus says, no, 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 I want you to love with all of it. This is the greatest commandment. Now, the words, they can miss us in our context. And so if you go to the next screen, what is the heart, soul, mind, strength? What does that look like? I think that our heart are like our emotions or our feeling. And there's some verses that kind of highlight some of that there if you want to look those up later. Our soul is your spirit or your self-consciousness. Your mind is your intellect or your thinking. And your strength is your action, your power, your serving. Right now, they're more than just this, okay? There's more complexity to this, but this is the heart of what uh, we're getting at here. God wants all of us, is what this is saying. Jesus spilled every single drop of his blood for you and gave all of himself for you, and now he asks that we would give all of ourselves back to him in return. He didn't withhold from us, so we do not withhold from him. In fact, anything less than all of us is unacceptable, is what this text is saying. You shall have no other gods before me, is how the Ten Commandments starts. God wants all of us, which is exactly where we actually come alive at, when we are giving ourselves fully and completely to God, is when we become fully human. This is why he's drawing us into this in a way. I love what St. Augustine said. He's an early African church father. And he says this. He says, you arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy, Because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That means you were made for God. You belong to God. This is where you will thrive, and Jesus wants all of you. And if you want to find true joy or true rest or true peace or actual love, this is found as you give all of yourself to Jesus. This is where you come alive. And so God wants you to feel right feelings about him. He wants your emotions to be engaged in who he is. He wants your heart's affections to be stirred up for a love for God. He wants you to be able to feel the power of who he is. You engage God with your heart, with your feeling, with your emotions, but you also engage God with your mind, 
with your intellect. He wants you to think right thoughts. The faith is not a blind faith where we just feel and believe. No, it's also an intellectual faith that every single thing in Scripture, it makes sense. And he wants to engage our minds. He wants your hands for service, your hearts in worship, your minds in thinking. All of us, our whole soul, to be engaged in God and who he is. And as you do this, then you come fully alive. And none of us hit this to perfection, right? But I bet that some of us are more prone to a couple of these things than other things. You know what I mean? Like some of us are more feelers. And so it may be hard for us to begin to think high thoughts about God. But God wants to engage our mind. He says he wants us to think about who he is. And I believe that as we actually engage in our mind, as we think about God, it actually opens up our feeling that much more. This is where we come alive in a way. Or for some of us, we're high intellect. We think right thoughts about God, but then we say things like, yeah, I just don't really feel worship. I just don't really engage in worship, as if we can just skip over clear commands in Scripture, right? And so we're like, oh, I'm not very emotional. Like, that's the excuse. No, no, no. God wants that part of you too, right? He doesn't just want your right thoughts. He wants your right heart. He wants all of you in that way. And so the deeper you think about God, the more you'll feel, the more you feel, the more you'll serve, the more you serve. All of you is engaged in this. God wants all of us, all of us, every single part of us. And so family of God, where can you grow in your love for God? Can you grow in your mind? Can you grow in your actions, actually living out the truth of God? Can you grow in your heart, right? And as you grow in these areas, then you will be filled with more of who God is, and this is what will make you fully alive. More on this in a second. Now, if this is where we stopped, right here today, we would already go, oh my gosh, this is hard, right? Like, if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, I ain't loving God like that. (laughs) Like, I want to love God like that. But I have a difficult time mustering up any of this. But then Jesus always gives us more than what we think because he's a good God that loves us. And so he follows it up and says, also, the second command, which is actually tied into the first to make it one command, is that you must love your neighbor as yourself. How can you love people to the best of your ability? Well, the scripture is really clear. As you love God, then his love flows into you and out of you, and then you are able to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so, in in other words, you cannot love your neighbor without actually loving God, not with a true, divine, agape, the highest and purest form of love. That cannot exist until you love God and feel God's love for you. And so the first command, Jesus puts them in this order on purpose because the first command is loving God. But then as you do that, it naturally flows out of you into your neighbor. First John 4 makes this abundantly clear. And so God commands us to love one another, which I think in our culture, we think it's so natural because we love this idea of love. But I don't think we naturally do this, nor do we even practically do this. Because to feel something towards someone is not the only thing that love is. Because love, friends, is an action. Love is a verb. It is you doing something. It is a movement, a command. Now what Jesus is doing is he's taking this from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. 
But for the scribe, remember, he knew the whole uh, Old Testament, especially the first five books. He would have known that that is a summary passage of a greater context in Leviticus chapter 19. Jesus doesn't leave this original hearer with any questions as to what it looks like to actually love one's neighbor because this is a summary passage of what it means to love one's neighbor. And so if you look on the screen here, this is what all that is commanded from Leviticus 19. You only think we were getting in Leviticus today, did you? y'all, right? Leviticus, the numbers next to this are the verses. It says, hey, listen, we care for the poor, right? We do not steal and we do not lie to one another. We're fair in business. We care for the deaf or the blind. In fact, we deal justly with all. We don't slander people. We don't stand idly when a neighbor's life is being threatened. We don't harbor hatred toward our brother. We rebuke our neighbor when it's necessary. We don't take revenge against each other. We do not uh, bear grudges against each other. You can actually take these three things, and I believe you can kind of break them up into three overarching categories, which is on the next slide here, and you can leave this slide up for a while. I think that really what it breaks down to is three overarching things. There's a moral response as to what it looks like to love your neighbor. There's a justice response as to what it looks like to love your neighbor. And then there's a mercy response as to what it looks like to love your neighbor. Once again, do you see how the scriptures, how Jesus is sort of stretching past our frame, our box, our norms? He's not just a religious elitist that says, hey, be morally right. Do morally right things. And that's all he focuses on is kind of behaving the right way. No, that's a part of it, but it's not just that. He's also not just kind of a a liberal, if you will, to use that language where it's like, hey, do justice. And that's the only thing he thinks about. No, Jesus kind of transcends all things. And so to put it really frankly, I don't know if Republicans or Democrats would ever vote for that man because he's capturing all things at once. Some of y'all ain't like that, but you need to get out your politics that much, all right? So, right, Jesus, okay, is literally, like he is loving people in this way, but loving is not just accepting people as they are. In fact, sometimes you need to rebuke people when necessary. This is mercy, this is giving somebody what they don't deserve, rather than just kind of allowing them to shipwreck their life, you step into the middle of it and even face that flack sometimes, extending mercy toward them. And so you rebuke when necessary. And so tolerance isn't love, which our culture really believes it is in some way. But you can tolerate someone all the way to hell, and that's the opposite of love, friends. See, I love my daughter, and so sometimes I do not tolerate the things that she does, but I rebuke her and correct her when necessary because I love her, because I genuinely think that there's a way that is good for her life, and as she follows that way, then her life will flourish. And so this is what it means to love, not just accepting, but even challenging and pushing in a way, right? My wife, she rebukes me. She corrects me when I'm tripping, which happens almost every day, right? Because your boy be tripping sometimes. But this is done with compassion, with gentleness, with kindness, like how our Father does to us. At the same time, though, uh, we cannot then overlook other people. There's a justice aspect to love. In that culture, it was caring for the deaf or the poor or the blind, people who couldn't help themselves. In our culture, maybe it's caring for the unborn, as our sermon hit on in our Justice and Mercy series several uh, months ago. Maybe it's standing up and fighting for racial reconciliation, not standing idly when our neighbor's life is threatened. 
Maybe it is literally looking at the refugee and trying to love them and extend our arms of love for them. Maybe it is uh, reaching out to the orphan and caring for them in very practical and sacrificial ways. Love doesn't just feel good, y'all. Love is an action that causes you to get your hands dirty and to get cut up sometimes because you're sacrificed for somebody else. This is what it looks like to love. And so we see immediately, it's not just this feeling, man, Jesus is stretching to a point that a lot of us are gonna be uncomfortable with. Jesus is challenging the norm in a way. It says, as you love yourself. In other words, how far would you go for yourself? Great, now go that far and then some for others. If you were hurting, if you had injustice systemically towards you, or you couldn't even defend yourselves, would you try to defend as much as you could? Yeah, okay, well then you go defend that person that much more. Would you want to be rebuked if you were tripping? Listen, y'all, if I start going wayward, I would want every single person in this room to go, Toriano Mayo, you are going wayward, right? Some of y'all didn't even know that was my full name, did you? Right? You are going wayward and they, to correct me back because I long for that. So I want you to be merciful to me. At the same time, I don't want you to harbor this frustration toward me. Are you, uh, what, which side are you on? Right? This is what God is kind of calling us toward. Are you just loving God only and trying to stir up a muster affection and emotion for God, but then you completely neglect loving your neighbor and you call it things like the social justice gospel to escape your responsibility? Or are you just focusing on humanity and loving the image bearers of God, but not loving the very one whose image they're created in? God wants both of us or all of us to love God and to love neighbor, every single part of it. And this is hard, y'all. But he says that when you do this, you fulfill the law to its completion in its entirety. Every single thing in this book is surrendered and pointed to those two things, loving God and loving people. For our God is love, and the law reflects the love of God or his character. And so all of it is summed up here. Now, if this is true, if this is what it looks like to love in this way, then what is the response? Well, let's look at how the story finishes in verse 32. It says, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so the scribe is humble, right? He is, uh, I think the temptation is for us to think that like every Pharisee is just this prideful person that Jesus doesn't wanna interact with, but that's not true. In fact, in John chapter three, you see Nicodemus coming to Jesus. And I think Nicodemus, as you see throughout the book of John is beginning to believe, well, that's what's happening to the scribe here. What's probably happening is he's watching Jesus in the temple answer all of these hard questions. And he's realizing, man, this man is answering with way more authority than what I have as a scribe, right? He kind of knows the law that much more. And I think the scribe maybe wants to know, which is why his response here is so submissive. It's humbling almost in a way. If you go to Jesus humbly, actually trying to learn, friends, he's going to teach you. If you come to him ready with hands open, wanting to receive, he's going to put into you. He's not trying to hide the kingdom from you, friends. 
You just have to be ready to receive. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't ready to receive. They came trying to challenge Jesus. This guy comes trying to understand Jesus. And in his understanding, he grows. Now, what the scribe does is he answers Jesus with the same words that Jesus just said, which it's always wise to answer Jesus with his exact same words. Amen? That's just a good, if you take nothing else, take that from the sermon today, all right? Repeat the words of Christ back to him. You'll get an A plus on that exam, all right? But I think in all sincerity, in all honesty, like how many times do we not do that, you know? We say things like, man, I know Jesus says, I know the Bible says this, but in my situation, one amen there. Are we the only ones that do that, right? Amen? Amen. Like, man, hey, 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 I know it says this, but, but in our culture, it's kind of, and we start trying to twist the words of Jesus rather than trust the divinely inspired word of God. Listen, if Jesus wanted to give caveats, he would have given caveats, friends, but he didn't. And so we have to trust what he's saying here. He was bold and direct and yet wildly gracious and compassionate at the exact same time. So it's words, wise for us to trust his words, even when they're words that are really hard for us to swallow at times. It's wise for us to sit in this, to love God, to love your neighbor. Man, who does this, right? To, to fight, y'all, for black lives, for Latino lives, for unborn babies, or for refugees, or for the poor, or people who are hurting in various ways. To fight for them. Do, do we really do that? Right? Like, do we really not lie or cheat or steal or slander our neighbor? I mean, how many times do you slander your neighbor so that you can look better than them rather than getting below them and elevating them into the Imago Dei, the true image they were created in? I know so often I slander just trying to make myself better than because I love myself way more than I love my neighbor. Do we really act morally pure? Do you rebuke out of love? Do you not hold grudges? Y'all, this is difficult, right? Like, this is difficult to receive. And the crowd actually got this. Because look at the very end again in verse 34. It says that they walked away and they dared not ask him any more questions. Why? They felt the weight of it, y'all. See, for us, we're kind of used to this. So we're like the train by the living room. We don't even hear this anymore. But for the original hearers that heard this, this would have sounded like a train coming right in the middle of their living room. And they went, who can do this? Who in the world can can, can act like this, can love like this, can behave like this. Now, here's the temptation. I think the temptation in a lot of sermons is to kind of end it right here and to say, now you go and do likewise. You go and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You go love your neighbor as yourself. Man, go love like this. But shoot, I don't know about y'all, but in a couple of minutes, we're about to sing two more worship songs, and I'm going to have a really hard time engaging all of my mind and all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength right after hearing this, right? Like, I'm going to have a hard time. I'm going to have a hard time not bearing a grudge against my neighbor when I drive on 35 home today because some of y'all be exiting the church parking lot like your wife is going into labor, right? Like, man, it's going to be a hard time not bearing a grudge, right? But there's one person in here who begins to get it, right? There's one person who kind of starts to understand the thrust of this in this whole text. It's the scribe. Because the scribe, while everyone else is astonished, he kind of gets it in a way. Because Jesus says, hey, look, you're close to the kingdom. Why does Jesus commend the scribe here? Why does he encourage him? What is the scribe doing? Well, because I think the scribe is seeing that it's a matter of the heart, not a matter of duty. 
The scribe is beginning to realize that you draw close to the kingdom of God, not by proper theology, but by drawing close to Jesus, by proper worship. He's beginning to recognize that it's not out of a hard duty that you walk with God. It's out of a heart devotion that you walk with God. Why do I say that? Well, because look at his response. He actually does add on to what Jesus is saying a little bit. He says, yeah, yeah, to love God, to love neighbor. He said, this is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus gives him a little fist bump. He's like, good job, dog. You got it, right? That's actually what the Hebrew reads. Good job, dog. All right? He's saying, listen, even if I kept the whole law, this is what this man's saying here in this, the burnt offerings, the sacrifices. Remember, he's a scribe. He knows the Old Testament. Even if I kept every single aspect of the law, I tried my hardest to fulfill all of the law. And then even if I failed that and I offered up every single sacrifice that existed, it still wouldn't be enough. And Jesus is like, you got it, right? Who can enter the kingdom of God? Remember that question from last week? Jesus' answer is no one. And the scribe is beginning to realize this, but by God's grace, he's standing and talking to the very person that can extend the kingdom to him, Jesus. See, God in his infinite grace to this man, he's beginning to realize, and Jesus says, you're right there, right? Why do we see this? Why is that the reality? Why is that true? Well, we know that Jesus was the only human that ever existed that completely loved God with all of his mind, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. There was never a moment in Jesus's life where he did not fulfill all four of those to perfection, and he loved his neighbor as himself, and he sacrificed for his neighbor. As we see all throughout Mark, he's laying down his life over and over and over again, sacrificing sleep and food and even time with the Father to get below the neighbor and to lift them up. He's caring for the poor. He's seeing those who are hurting. He's rebuking in love. He's challenging. Jesus does all this to perfection, friends, and yet he dies on the cross as if he was the biggest God hater that ever existed and as if he did nothing but hate mankind. Why? Why does Jesus die like this? Because friends, this is what you and I deserved. See, those of us who do not fulfill this law at all, it says in the Bible that the wages of sin is death. We work sin and death becomes the paycheck, y'all. This is what we deserve, right? And yet Jesus, by his infinite love and his grace, he comes and he dies on the cross and he steps in our place so that all the ways that we do not love God and all the ways that we do not love our neighbor, Jesus pays the penalty for that sin. And all of Jesus's perfection and his righteousness, and he kept the law to utter perfection, he then gives that righteousness to us if we simply believe in him, y'all. He's not far from the kingdom because Jesus was the true burnt offering that faced the hell wrath of God. And Jesus was the true sacrifice that bled and died so that we who cannot keep this at all may now have the righteousness of God living inside of us. This is the gospel, friends. This is what we receive. Do you feel that? Do you believe that? Do you remember that? Or are you so common to that that you miss the train running through your room? This is the beautiful love of God found in Jesus. And this guy starts to get it. And he starts to believe that, I think. And as we see him wrestling with that, realizing, right, even if I do all the sacrifices, there's more. Jesus says, you're right. Right, you're right, it's me. And as we see all throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus continues to draw people back to himself who fulfilled this to perfection. 
But then listen, friends, but then as we believe in Jesus, what happens is he gives us the Holy Spirit. And as he gives us the Holy Spirit, he begins to make us righteous with God. We begin to be a new creation, the scripture says. And y'all, we can actually begin to walk in this and to fulfill this because it's his spirit working within us. This is unreal, y'all. Like, like you can actually begin to love the God of the universe with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and all of your strength. You can love God. How wild is that? That you can love the God of the universe and that love then can compel you to then love your neighbor as yourself and you lay down your life for those who are hurting and you stand up morally strong and you're mercifully walking with people because the love of God now dwells inside of you. This is unreal. See, we should feel the weight of this text, but Jesus picked up that weight and carried it for us and now he lets us walk in him. This is unreal, y'all. We get to actually begin to walk in this. And the scribe, as he asks that question and probes, this is what Jesus begins to show. And see, I think the temptation is for us is for to say, hey, give me like the three steps I need to do to love my neighbor better. And we look at Leviticus, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm going to fight for black lives now, right? Like, I'm going to go do this. And we begin to think like that, right? No, 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 that's not right. As you fix your eyes on Jesus, this comes out naturally, y'all. You begin to do this because the love of Christ compels you, 2 Corinthians 5 says. And as you are compelled because the love of God is now dwelling inside of you, you go out and you love people recklessly, sacrificially, with abandon in a way, the same way that your God has loved you. As you fix your eyes on Jesus, it transforms your heart, friends. And you begin to be the very person that comes alive in this. Friends, this is what I long to be for as a church. I long, I long, I long to be a church that loves God with all of us. We can love God, y'all. I long to be a church that then loves neighbor even more than we love ourselves in a way, that we serve those around us. Like, don't you wanna be a part of that? This is what the kingdom of God will look like actually. And we pray the kingdom of God would happen on earth as it is in heaven. And so would we be a people that represent that? Would we be a people that ask ourselves the tough question, are we engaging our mind? Are we engaging our hearts? Are we loving God with all of us? Are we loving our neighbor? Not out of duty, but out of devotion for God. And when we feel like we're failing at this, we don't try to muster up more. No, we fix our eyes on Jesus, see what he's done for us, and allow this to compel us to love others. This is what it means to be a believer, a follower of God. This is the commandment. As you do that, you fulfill all of scripture. And we begin to be a people that reflect the beauty of our God and the whole world will be drawn to that. This is how we plant churches. This is how we send missionaries. This is how we serve the poor. This is how we push back darkness, friends. Would we be a church that desperately longs to be that? I love you guys. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that this changes the world. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us, for serving us, for literally being the sacrifice for us, for giving it all, for loving God completely where we failed to do that, and for loving neighbor as oneself completely where we failed to do that. God, I pray we would focus on the gospel over and over and over and over again. Let us not grow numb to the gospel, Jesus.
Let us be a church that doesn't just hear the train and completely ignore the power of it. Would we feel your power, walk in your love as a body? God, I pray for those in here who may not know you. They may not know what it means to walk with their God like that. Friends, right now, you can have a relationship with the God of the universe. It sounds so easy. See, none of us can keep the law to perfection, and this is what it takes to get to heaven, perfection. But Jesus comes, and he lives a perfect life, and if you believe in him, he gives you that perfection and takes away all of your brokenness. I know that sounds scandalous. That sounds crazy because it is. It's simple because God wants a relationship with you to draw you back to himself and then to catalyze you to be change agents in this world around you. This is God's desire. And today, you can enter into the family of God if you simply believe. You say, Jesus, gosh, I don't even know what it looks like to walk with you, but, but I want to at least try to walk with you like that. Would you forgive me? Would you accept me? If you ask, the door will be opened. And you will have a relationship with God that will change eternity. And for all of us, God, who has placed our faith in you like that, would you compel us to love you more and to serve you more with all that we have, Jesus? We pray this in your precious and your beautiful name. Amen. Friends, at four different places in the room, our places for communion. And we end with this every week. We pinnacle to this point because we want to remember the sacrifice of Christ, what he's done, the thing we just talked about, how he loved us and, and gave himself for us. And so at any point in these next two songs, if you are a, a believer in God, I would encourage you go rip off the bread and dip it in the juice as a reminder of who God is. And I want to read this. This is where we get